Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wonder and Learn podcast. My name is Ronnie and I'm a homeschool mum of four children from the southwest of England. Each week we will be discovering more about how children learn and develop so that we can create an environment that lights up their minds, sparks their imaginations and enhances learning. I hope this podcast will inspire you to bring wonder and joy into your child's education. Today, I am delighted to welcome Sue Palmer onto the podcast. Sue is a former teacher. She is also a literacy expert and is the author of many books on education and childhood. Hi, Sue, and welcome to the podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to have you join us today because we are talking about such an important subject, early education and raising compulsory school age. It's something that I'm really passionate about, and I'm just thrilled that you're able to join us today and talk about this. You've been doing some really good work with your Upstart book and the campaign. Um, Just to start off with, with, could you um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Uh, yes, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I'm, um, I'm I'm a lifelong teacher, really. I was um, I was born in 1948, trained as a teacher in the early 1970s, then became a literacy specialist for most of my professional life. So I was writing, and sort of going around doing training and things for teachers about that. And then at the end of the 1990s, I think actually I was just around the age of 50 that I got a completely total change of direction because I became very interested in child development and um, early years and that's what led to my interest in whether we're in the UK particularly starting school formal schooling too young. Yeah and um, when I read your book Upstart I was actually quite shocked that um, it wasn't until really the 1980s that people started to really push children into school at the age of four before that it was sort of five and then you know it started to become younger and younger I guess well it's a, it's always been that you start school the uh, the year you turn five in England and Scotland where I live in Scotland currently um, and that meant there were some children who were four but what happened in the it was really, yes, the 80s going into the 90s that when there was a demand for nursery places, but there weren't enough nurseries, um, that people thought, oh, well, we could, we could just pop them into school a bit earlier. And it became much, much more common, particularly in England, to, um, to, to, to get four-year-olds into school because it, it meant that parents, it's always, I'm afraid people tend to think of uh, early care and education as so parents can go to work not anything to do with the children really and that i think was the 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 the, i remember being fascinated by it because um the head teachers loved it because they got more money because they they, it was known as bums on seats you know the more bums you had on seats the more money you got so it became much much more common and then some areas seemed to sort of assume that children would start at four i think by, by the end of the last century yeah and um 
it's really interesting to me the background that you come from and how you were involved in the national literacy strategy which mm. you know we know that um, children are doing phonics from the age of four and then there's the phonics screening test but you've kind of gone back on that a bit saying that children should start formal education at the age of seven um, can you tell us a bit about what made you change your mind knowledge <laughs> basically it was finding things I think this is the thing that I've learned is that we accept stuff that happens just because it's always happened you know you think oh well, everybody starts school at the age of whatever and da, 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 da. well actually when I, I looked into it I discovered that only 12 percent of countries in the world start school before the age of six um and I, I can't be absolutely sure on this because I, I check up and things details seem to change when I'm checking up but almost every one of them is an ex-member of the British Empire. So it's a very British thing to send your children to school early and, and all the um, other places that were associated with us. And then I checked out the reasons for that. And there's, you can actually, I, I found somewhere the parliamentary debate in the 1860s. Um, it was nothing to do with um, that they chose that the year children turn five as school starting age. It was an economic way. Well, they called it safeguarding. Um, they said it was to keep the children safe because so many parents were working in the factories and the mines and they didn't want the children on the streets. And there was also the mention that if started sooner, they'd come up sooner at the other end and they could go to work in the factories right. and down the mines yeah. as well. So it was an economic decision really, um, not at all related to what was known at the time about um, early childhood education. And a fair bit was known because Fribble, the you know the great founder of the movement, he'd been at it really since the 1830s, 18, yeah, I think it's the 1830s that his school opened, I can't remember, but it was certainly some many decades before. So that's why most other countries start at six or seven, because, um, you know, it's related to when people think children are ready to begin formal education. Yeah, and um, thinking about literacy and starting so young, um, people don't really understand, I don't think, the skills that are pre-literacy skills, you know, the speech and language and metalinguistic awareness, print awareness. There's so many skills that children have to learn, you know, even like balance and physical skills. That they need well, to I was learn. going to say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say that because we tend to think about the things like pencil control and, and being able to follow a line of print and, and phonics and all that sort of thing. But actually, those things are based in other developmental aspects so you, you've got to have social and, and communication skills um you know leading into language but you've also got to have the capacity to regulate your behavior which actually is a long slow process through through early childhood be learning to recognize emotions understand emotions and control emotions and sort of you know govern your own feelings and uh well, a baby can't do it at all and it, it we usually people have expected it to happen somewhere around about six or seven so we're asking our little children to sit down and behave and <laughs> and do all these things that they're supposed to do in school at an age when most of them well i don't think we actually help them to self-regulate i think what we tend to do is teach them to comply yeah. which is not, not necessarily 
um, a, a wonderful thing in life. You know, it's yeah, it, you need yeah. to be have a, a reasonable self of sense of agency in order to carry on learning and enjoying and, and for your well-being. Absolutely, so, and even you know those physical skills. Um, I do some work as a speech and language therapist and a boy that I work with recently in reception class, um, he was referred for possible autism. Um, and I met him and I just thought this child does not have autism at all. His social skills are really good. But he was behind in his literacy and numeracy and the parents were very, very worried about this. And then he had an assessment with on his motor skills and it was found that he was on the first percentile for his gross motor skills. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. He probably is struggling so much even to just sit up straight and sit in a chair and balance and all this thing. You know, maybe he can't even cross the midline. How do they expect him to then go on to learn to read and write? Yes, and he's got two options really, hasn't he? He can either sort of challenge and say, I can't do this and, and refuse, in which case he's being defiant <laughs> in, in um, adult terms, or he can desperately, desperately try and, and struggle and maybe just scrape through. But what's that doing to his general self-image and his feelings about learning and his feelings about school? So it, it seems to me to be an absolutely cruel thing to do to children. And, and once I started looking into it, I mean, I'm not saying I don't want them to, be, to learn to read and write, but there is no reason why that has to happen. No reason, none, no research showing it's a good idea to do it at a very early age. Uh, but a great deal suggesting that it's actually can be harmful. Yeah, and yeah. the issues concerned tend to be that you don't see necessarily the problem emerging at the time necessarily. <laughs> Uh, but you do notice by the time, if children have been started too soon, you can get social and emotional problems which tend to show around about the age of 10, 11 or so. And um, well, the too long, there's only, getting a really long term study that's really looking at it is difficult, but there's two. Um, one done by Highscope back in the 60s and 70s, and they found that children who'd been pushed into formal learning too early by the age of 27, were more likely to have um, been involved in the law, got into criminal activities, more likely to have had trouble holding down a job, trouble with relationships, less likely to vote. Um, it, was, it was just that sort of social struggling. Yeah, absolutely. And it just seems crazy because when we think about schooling, quite a lot of the time it is to get children ready for the workplace and to be members, you know, good members of society. Um, but it just goes to show that pushing them into that too early is, is yeah. actually quite damaging for them. And when I think about um, my own experience with my children, so I've got four children and three of them at the moment are home educated. The eldest one is 12. She started year seven in September. Um, but the eldest one, she actually had a bit of an interesting experience because I home educated her for reception and then I put her into school for year one and then she came out and we home educated again from year two. But when she went into school for year one, I hadn't done any phonics or anything like that with her. So she started a year later than the other children and they sort of 
made her just go in with the reception class for 15 minutes every morning to catch up on the phonics. But what was quite interesting is by the time, by Christmas time that year, so after the first term, she'd caught up with the rest of her class. And I think it just goes to show that, you know, when children are a little bit older, they're just cognitively more able to pick up those skills. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it, that was one of the things, one of the countries that I, I, I was very fortunate because of the publishing I'd been doing, I was able to travel a great deal at the time when I got developed this interest in early years in child development. Um, and um, I've now been to Finland three times, but I, I do remember on my first visit to Finland, I was stunned that they didn't start school till seven, you know, and and I went and watched the, the, the daycare system that they have and thought, this is actually marvellous. <laughs> They're laying these really solid foundations. And when I went into the first class where the children were six going on seven, most of them were just pushing seven or just over seven, um, and it was September, at the beginning of the new school term and um i said to the teacher so um they've not done any sort of formal literacy how long really before you expect them to be literate and he looked at me blithely and said oh by christmas yeah yeah <laughs> because they're <clears throat> they've got all the background in nobody's holding if they're interested before they, they want to write before they're seven in Finland. Of course, they, the teachers help them and they, you know, and they support them in reading in the way that a mum or a dad or someone would as appropriate to the child. So many of them are already well on the way, but they just sit down and get it all sorted out and learn the handwriting properly and everything. And, and, um, and it's just so much easier for everybody. Absolutely. And um, it really was interesting reading that chapter on your in your book about Finland and how early education is over there. Could you just tell us a little bit more about the benefits and, you know, maybe what we can learn from Finnish early years education? I get to be a bit boring when I go on about, and I've been told to shut up recently. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, it, it just, I, I couldn't get over how happy the children were in, in, in their daycare and how sensible and Oh, just lovely people that, that, that worked there. It was so relaxed. Um, and the children actually look after each other a lot, which again, being, this must be how it was meant to be. I, I, I mean, I've also got really interested in evolutionary biology because of all this. And I mean, the point is that around about children about two or three years old, most mums would have another baby by that time in the past before contraception, you know, for most of human history. And then around about the age of seven-ish, children would be old enough really to help with the family business. You know, if you if you were farming, they could help look after the beasts or do jobs. That little group, about three to, to seven, they would have been looking after each other and learning from each other, which is why I think daycare and things are very good. I mean, if you possibly can find a good, good kindergarten system, because you could, the kids can be with other kids. So I loved watching the big ones, the six year olds looking, helping the little three year olds and the three year olds looking up to the six year olds and lots of music, lots of singing and music, uh, play, which of course, lots of talk, uh, lots of being outdoors, um, which is great for the physical development. So I loved it. And I I actually got to interview, I went for the first time I went, I went for the Times Educational Supplement, which got me 
opportunities to go to places I couldn't go on my, you know, under my own steam. And I interviewed a government minister in Finland about it. And I just said to him, oh, my goodness, how did you get this wonderful daycare system that you have before the children go to school? And he said, oh, it was not always like this. Um, 30 years ago, he said, so this would have been the 70s. We were a very bad place in Finland, had economic problems. And we were thinking, how do we get a good system after our little children? And so they, that was when they started expanding the daycare system and you've know, had a lot of time to perfect it. And um, I think, you know, it shows because they've now got some of the highest levels of well-being in the world for the children and for the adults. They always do very well in educational surveys, international educational surveys, lowest prison population in Europe lowest level of um, relationship breakdown in Europe. They're a, they're a comfortable society. So yeah, I, yeah I'm boring about Finland. <laughs> I think it's work. Yeah, it, I mean, it sounds, wonderful. it sounds wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. And when I was listening to you talk just then, and you were mentioning, you know, the outdoor education, there's lots of opportunities for play, there's a lot more play based. Um, and we know that when children have more time to play, they, they develop lots of different skills and they, you know, the self-regulatory skills and everything like that. Um, and I think what I've noticed as well from the homeschool community is a, some parents, they will start homeschooling because they do want to delay that formal education and they can see that their four-year-old actually is not ready to be able to sit and to write and things like this. And I do find that there tends to be, in my local area at least, more boys that are home educated than girls. Do you think there is a difference between boys and girls in their ability to cope with early formal education? I do. I mean, it's all, this is all very uh, difficult territory we're in here with the whole gender <laughs> debate going on. And I, I'd, I'd say, you know, you can't sort of generally, you, you can't generalize about children. They're all different, they're all themselves. But on the whole, the, the literature I, I read about early child development suggests that boys are developmentally a bit less socially and emotionally um, sort of adept than girls. So statistically, you find that boys are slower to talk than girls. They're, they're, even before that, girls will be good, um, sort of going like that to be lifted up before boys. All the sort of gesture and uh, probably girls smile before boys. I'm I'm not quite sure, but they're they're, they're generally just ad adapting to the social thing quicker. Um, which means that by the time they've got to you know four or five, um, many girls can settle into a classroom. Whereas for many boys, it's it's more difficult. They they tend to be still more active, finding it more difficult to focus. Um, but you see, I, I, I think both, um, I'd like to see the girls get more time to be outdoors and develop their own self-confidence and their own self sense of agency and their, their own sort of ability to, and this is why I'm so passionate about it now, because I was dead lucky. I was born in 1948. So my granny sent me out to play in the streets with the other kids when I was about two and a half. And right through my childhood, I had this free childhood that people talk about, romance. <laughs>
we did play. We did get that opportunity to be out and with the other kids and, and learning in the way that children have learned through the millennia. And I I don't know, it wasn't always glorious. Sometimes you were wet and cold. Sometimes you, you know, you were a bit worried about getting lost. And sometimes there were really big boys who might might be frightening. But <laughs> it, I do think that that was a very, very important part of my childhood. And I know talking to other people of my generation and the generations up to really about the 80s, there was really, my, my own daughter had a relatively free range childhood. She was born in 1986. But it's just been these last few decades, really, the last 30 years or so. You can't expect that to happen. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. I mean, I do think one of the sad things about school is that there's not enough time for that outdoor play and being yeah, outdoors. Quite. And this is the one thing that is beneficial about homeschooling. We spend a lot of time outdoors. And now that my eldest has gone into school, she does often comment, you know, she's 12 now, so she's perfectly capable of sitting and listening for long periods of time. But she does comment a lot about the lack of outdoor time because, yeah. you know, the lunch period is so short. And, you know, by the time they've queued up and eaten, there's not really any time to be outside. And one thing that she really gets annoyed about as well, you know, they do have this forest school thing going on in schools now, but it's often just for the kids who have special educational needs. And she's often saying to me, you know, why is it the, only the kids with special educational needs who get to be outdoors? Why can't all of us benefit from being outdoors and learning about nature and things like that? And one of the things that absolutely horrified me when I was I, I researched a number of books on, on um, what I call child development in the modern world. You know, do, are we, in terms of the lifestyles we're giving to our children, are we doing them more harm than good in many ways? And one of the things I found terrifying was the number of schools that are being built without playgrounds. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> school fields being sold off. I think most of the ones that have been built with completely without playgrounds have been secondary schools. But even secondary kids need to get out and breathe and move. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it really is quite frightening. There's, there's just no, well, I think that there is a growing understanding about the importance of children being outdoors and active. I have to say my home country of Scotland, I think, is really getting very, very good on it. We've, we've got a, a lot more interest in outdoor learning now and, and, and it's really been pushing through and up the age groups. But I, I fear that it's, it's going to take a long time to get the majority of English schools, particularly in the inner cities, to be able to give children the, the levels of activity that they need. But the first thing is, I wish that they would be extending big times rather than as too often. Children aren't behaving very well at breaks, so we'll, we'll give them less time. Yeah. And that's exactly the wrong thing to do. Yeah, they probably need, <laughs> they need time that to be active time to... and have a little break. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So for there are obviously going to be parents listening to this who have a four-year-old who's just started school and maybe they can't homeschool and they don't know what to do about it. Do you think there's anything they can do to kind of counteract those risks that early education has on a child? Um, well, it, it, it very, very much depends on the school. And this is one of the problems, I think. And it's why up here in Scotland, we've started a group of friends have started a campaign called Upstart Scotland to try and get a kindergarten ethos as, as a statutory requirement in schools up to the age of going on seven. 
um, because you know if the school's got a, a policy that isn't the policy you'd like, it's not very easy for parents to do much about it. Um, and, and you do want your child to feel comfortable and happy at school. So I think the, the main thing is try and, you know, talk to teachers um, and so on, that sort of thing. Um, but also make sure there's plenty of opportunity for outdoor play and being outdoors during the rest of children's time. And, um, you know, camping holidays and things like that, if you can possibly bring yourselves to live under tents. But I mean, you know, that, that, that sort of compensating and I, I actually had the problem with my own daughter is dyslexic was very seriously dyslexic so I had that whole business of trying to negotiate how do I deal with school um, when school is not being very helpful yeah. <laughs> and um, in fact my my answer was I actually had to move her mm. yeah and, uh, you know, it, but, it, but it's it, it, I know the difficulties for parents and it's why I did a book in 2006, I think it was called Toxic Childhood, um, how the modern world is damaging our children and what we should do about it. And one of the major things was they need to be outdoors more, they need to be playing and all those sorts of arguments. And then I ended up talking to a lot of parents being asked to give talks. And it was very clear from talking to them, we can't let our children play out. You know, it's, it's dangerous and it is, there's cars everywhere. <laughs> That's why I think the state is going to have to step in. We've got to change the way we address early education and, and stop obsessing unnecessarily about literacy at a very early age and start thinking there's, there's other things that matter more when you're four, five, yeah. six. So how do you think we can um, kind of ease the worry of parents who are maybe thinking, you know, children have to start reading at four you know and teachers who are thinking children need to do the, all those phonics and do the phonics screen test do you think there's anything that we could say or do to kind of ease their worries that children you know they just need a bit more time before they they should start that formal learning or is it just education I, I the education establishment has to change in the end, we really do need to see change. And we are beginning to see things changing in Scotland. It, it's gonna, it's not going to be easy, but things are moving. But I, I fear England is locked into this very early start mentality. And I, I know that many, many schools um, do not agree with it, but get, you know they've got to do as they're told by Ofsted and everyone. There are two organizations that it's worth knowing about. Um, one is called Keep Early Years Unique, um, or is it Keeping Early Years Unique, run by a wonderful woman called Elaine Bennett, uh, which is mostly practitioners and teachers, um, but they have plenty of helpful stuff on their website. And the other one for parents more is, is called More Than a Score, um, you can Google that one as well. They've just put a, a super video about why SATs are not necessarily a good thing for kids. And they're very much campaigning against this pushing with the phonics and so on. So that, that's, a you know, I think it always helps to have other people that you agree with, that you can, can commune with and, um, and know you're not, you know, on your own and mad. <laughs> because yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And um, um, why do you think we will have more difficulty bringing 
something like the Upstart campaign and raising compulsory school age to England, is is there quite a difference there between Scottish and English education systems? Yeah, yeah. Um, we didn't have the same degree of change during the Thatcher years that you had in England. Um, we don't have um, primary schools and so on. It's all still um, mostly state-based education. Um, but it's also, it's had a completely different tradition right from the beginning. So, but we still have the problem that the academic is seen as the, the really important thing. And while I have absolutely no problem with academic you know, prowess, great if kids are that way inclined, I think the whole of the UK is, is very um, hierarchical and, and with an academic type hierarchy in a way that is not actually profitable for the majority of the population. <laughs> Um, but it, it, it is better in Scotland at the moment. Um, yeah, and could you tell us a little bit more about the Upstart campaign and what work you're doing in Scotland to bring about changes? Um, well, we started seven years ago, we got going and we actually launched it in 2016. Um, but it, there was obviously an awful lot of enthusiasm among people working in nurseries and in early primary schools. Um, and actually we didn't, <laughs> although I'm a former teacher and um, so is the vice chair, Kate, she's a nursery teacher. Um, most of our supporters in the early stages and still are from a health background because the reason we really got going was we saw the hugely increasing incidence of mental health problems among children and we thought it's because we're not caring for them as well as we should in their early years so we've got people involved with us who are developmental neuroscientists professors of public health um, people in environmental sustainability too on the principle that you need to get little children outdoors into nature and then they're going to care more about the planet in the future um people from social work backgrounds who think it's a social justice issue which is uh, very involved with the children's rights movement. We're trying at the moment to get um, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child actually incorporated into Scots law. So there's a lot of different people that come to, have come together to, to work on it. And yeah, we think we've helped to, certainly our influence has, has been felt in terms of getting outdoor play and the increasing, I think every nursery now has got pretty good nursery outdoor space lots and lots of forest nurseries but also in 2019 um, we got terrific practice guidance for up to the age of um, six which is totally developmental nature so that's that's making and it's been wonderfully received so that's that's made a a big difference oh and and an offshoot of um upstart um, decided that they did not want to see four-year-olds in school. So they've now managed to obtain a, a promise from the Scottish government that as of next year, any parent with a four-year-old who would like to defer school entry will get an automatic deferral and a fun further funded year in nursery. Oh, that's amazing because, you know, I think a lot of parents will think, well, you know, if I, I need the childcare, so I'll send them to school because of that rather than because they want to. 
I think, you know, what, what I, I was at another meeting, I'm, I'm going to meetings, I was at a meeting last night where people were saying, well, you're almost there, aren't you? You're nearly there. And I'm saying, we've got to make it statutory. We've got to make it yeah, statutory. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I think we've covered a lot so far in this um, conversation. And I just wanted to finish really by asking, um, what advice would you give to parents of under sevens? Keep it real. I, I, I came to the conclusion that there's two vital ingredients in, in terms of child development. The first one's love. And that's not just to keep them alive and well-dressed and all the other stuff and, and for housed. It's also so that they know they feel loved. Um, your internal working model that you feel that you are a person who's worthy of attention and, and love. Terribly important to the human being. And, this, and that means spending time together and listening and all that sort of stuff. Um, and the the other thing they need is play, because that's their internal um, learning drive. They need to discover and explore and experiment. So as long as they're getting lots of love and lots of play, and as much of it as possible in the real world, because they're a three-dimensional being and they need to exist in the three-dimensional universe, then I think that's that's what lucky children have had through the millennia, isn't it really? Yes, amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sue. Um, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you and going through some of your ideas from the book and how we should be raising the school starting age and all of the things that are important to develop in children before that formal education starts. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been lovely chatting. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find out more about Sue Palmer's books and her work on the Upstart campaign in Scotland by following the links in the show notes of this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do remember to leave some feedback. It just helps other families like yours to find the podcast and benefit from it. See you next week for another episode of the Wonder and Learn podcast.